we begin this morning, I will pray. Uh, we are in Psalm 8 this morning. Psalm 8. Probably a familiar psalm to many of you. Like I said, we are in a series in the summer called Summer Psalms, and uh, this is our third week looking at a selection of psalms, and we're bouncing around. We're not going in order. First week was Psalm 63, then 107, and now Psalm, <coughs> psalm 8. And the title, if you're taking notes, is Who Am I? Who Am I? I thought about calling it What is Man? And you'll see that coming from the the text we're going to read, but then I figured, well, I don't know if I want to do that because my other announcement is it's Father's Day. And so happy Father's Day to all of the fathers and grandfathers in the room. Let's give a round of applause for all of the dads in the room. We appreciate you and all that you do. Thank you for your godly leadership and example here in the church and uh, in your home, and we appreciate you, but happy Father's Day. But I didn't want to call it what is man, because then they'd be like, oh great, another Father's Day message. And this really isn't. It's a, it's a question about, or a question that answers uh, about humanity and our identity. So who am I? Who are we? And it's coming from Psalm 8. So why don't I pray for us and our Mexico mission team, and then we'll get started. God, we come before you this morning, and what a great time to be able to sing and worship you in light of your greatness and how all creatures and all of creation acknowledge you as their maker and, and do as they were created to do, which is to bring glory and honor to your name. And, and God, that's all that we want to do this morning. And, and at the same time, we want to, as we understand you more, we want to understand ourselves more. And we want to know who you made us to be in order that we might live out that purpose and your goodwill for our lives. And so we pray our time this morning in your word would be both stimulating in our worship, but also instructive in our walk with you. And God, I pray for the team that is heading to Mexico. Obviously, we pray for safe travels there and while they are there, uh, moving around and also as they they come home, Lord. We pray for safety and protection and provision over them. Uh, but even more importantly than that, God, we pray for fruitfulness in their ministry and in their time there. We pray that all that they have set to do, um, that God, that those things would be accomplished, and even more so, things that are not on the, their radar but are on yours. And so, God, we pray for those divine appointments. We pray for you to be going before them even before they leave, uh, paving the way for what it is that you want to accomplish. And so we pray uh, your spirit over them even now, and, uh, and again, your protection and safety, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Who am I? Well, I think, as I was thinking about this sermon, perhaps the most important question any one of us can mull over in our minds and think about, second only to the question, who is God, is the question, who am I? In fact, when you think about that question, all throughout history, human beings have struggled with the answer to this question. Though I can't think of a time in our day and age, in our history, when people have been more confused about the basic answer to that question, 
when they look in the mirror and they're confused on what they see. Who am I? You see, there are some basic assumptions about what it means to be a human being that, again, people are confused by, things that in times past they haven't been confused by. Uh, assumptions <coughs> like what is the difference between a man and a woman? But even those basic facts about human anatomy and biology are confusing. Again, who am I is the question we're looking at this morning. Even beyond that subject, though, of gender, perhaps now more than ever the question, who am I in regard to my calling, my purpose, my meaning, all of these things. And the, the, that question is important because where you go looking for the answer to that question is even more important. You see, the, the question of who am I can be explored in all kinds of different ways. For example, in philosophical discussion, Dan, I know you're perking up over there. In philosophical discussion, it is one of those essential existential questions. Who am I? Is there meaning and purpose to this life, right? But in reality, we believe that question, who am I, is not a philosophical or existential question. It's a theological question. Nevertheless, whether people realize it or not, whether they believe in God or not, everyone is, pursu in, is pursuing that question, who am I? They want to know their identity and meaning. And we see this illustrated throughout history, in literature, particularly in ancient and modern literature, especially in stories that involve characters, where the protagonist, let's say, the main character of the story, not only do they have to battle the opposing forces that are outside of them, but at some point in the story, right, they have to battle the biggest, the biggest question of them all, which is that internal existential crisis of personal identity. Who am I? For example, in the, the Disney story of Aladdin, we see an impoverished young boy, a street rat, right, as he is called in the movie. Yet this young boy, a street rat, identified by that, by everybody else, believes, I've got to be more than this, more than a street rat. Well, on the other hand, there are characters who maybe they weren't raised in the streets, maybe they're raised up high, characters like Bruce Wayne in Batman. He was raised having everything, right? Loving parents, wealthy, everything is there, but then tragedy strikes and all the basic assumptions of his life are stripped away and now he's questioning, who am I? And what purpose do I have to live on? But you don't have to look to literature or pop culture to see this theological or existential crisis within human beings. All you need to do is look in the mirror and see that struggle play out in real life. Time. The fact is, no matter your age, whether you're young or whether you're old, no matter what your background or family history is, we all struggle at times to know and discover the answer to that question, who am I? And the good news is there is an answer to that question. The problem, again, is knowing where to look and find it. You see, despite what modern culture will tell you, if you go looking within yourself to find yourself, you will only end up twisted in on yourself, where instead the Bible tells us not to look down but up, and not to look in but outside of ourselves in order to find out who we really are, which is totally countercultural to what we're hearing today. Again, the question, who am I, is perhaps the most important question to ask, second only to the question, who is God? In fact, thinking upon this question, this essential question, is probably why 
John Calvin. He was a famous theologian of the 16th century, and he wrote what is basically shaped systematic theology in the way we think about that in his, in his work called The Institutes. And he began with this hypothesis. He said, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. In other words, wisdom is discovering the answers to these two basic questions, who is God and who am I? Because we can't truly understand ourselves without an understanding of the one who made us, and we can't just pursue God or the knowledge of God without that knowledge significantly impacting those whom He has made in His image and likeness, as we'll go on to discover more. Even Socrates, getting a little bit more philosophical here, the well-known Greek philosopher, and is, is known to have said the following, to know thyself is the beginning of wisdom. But again, biblically speaking, to truly know thyself is not first to search for personal identity, but to then also lead that to a search for God. Because to discover God is to uncover who we truly are, those whom He has made. So this morning, we're not going to fully answer that question, who am I? However, we're going to consider the meditation of David in this psalm, Psalm 8, upon that question, who am I? And it's a meditation that shows David possessed the wisdom that John Calvin was talking about, the wisdom that is true and sound, possessing those two necessary parts, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves. And as we get ready to read the psalm, let me state, I'll, I'll just go ahead and state the answer to the question that the psalmist is going to give us. And the, the answer is this, humanity is a display of God's power and care through human weakness and dignity. That's the answer we're going to get. Humanity, a display of God's power and care through human weakness and dignity. Why don't we read together Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to Gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. As we read there, the, the introduction of this psalm, that it is a psalm of David. And unfortunately, we aren't told exactly when David wrote this psalm, what stage of his life, or on what occasion or season he desired to write it. Some have suggested that David wrote this psalm when he was 
a young boy. Maybe it was one of his first psalms that he had ever written. And, and they think this because when he was a young man, we know he served his father as a shepherd, which is a good and likely thought that maybe he did write it as a young man, seeing as though he would have had plenty of time sitting there all by himself, watching over these sheep, and then at night, sitting under the stars, gazing in awe upon the vastness of the universe, and, and again, looking down, looking up and then looking down and seeing these sheep, these animals that he, based upon his father, had been entrusted to care for them. On the one hand, as a shepherd, he had this incredible responsibility and power to care for these animals. I mean, imagine probably an eight-year-old David watching over a bunch of sheep, just a kid, really. And without him there, they would have certainly perished. So in comparison to them, David's probably thinking, man, look at how much authority and responsibility even an eight-year-old kid has. But on the other hand, when he looked up to the stars overhead and thought upon the vast universe and then the God who is even bigger than that and who created all of that and holds it all together 24-7, he must have felt so insignificant, so small, like a speck of dust existing within God's time and space. And with all that experience, even as a young boy, that experience and that meditation, certainly a young shepherd would have, a, a young shepherd whom God said was a man after his own heart, would have been able to come up with a conclusion like we find here in Psalm 8. However, maybe there's another thought, and, and I tend to lean a little bit this direction, that David wrote this psalm when he was much older. And along with those childhood experiences that he gained through innocence and curiosity, his experiences later on as the king of Israel with all the trials and tribulations and failures and victories, certainly his view of God and view of himself would have grown as he had gotten older. It wouldn't have gotten smaller. But regardless of when and why, what we are seeing in the psalm is the meditation of David upon the greatness of God and the smallness of humankind in comparison. But at the same time, it doesn't stop there because this psalm is not merely a meditation of man's smallness or our insignificance, but it's also of our greatness and dignity through God's divine position that he gave to us in his creation, and how God, in light of these two truths, both our smallness and our dignity, that, man, or that God has chosen to display his power and care in the world through our weakness, which is in direct contrast to the power that the world wields. That's what we're seeing in this psalm, which, which makes sense why the psalm begins and ends the way it does. And, and look at the beginning and the end of this, because in the beginning what we see is a, a repetition in verse 1 and verse 9, and I want to point out that obvious repetition to you. It's at the beginning and the end. It's a statement about God's majestic name, and, and this is a literary structure. It's, it's known as an inclusio, and it's common within the Psalms and Hebrew poetry, and its function within biblical literature is to act basically like bookends on a shelf. It holds all of the contents 
together in the middle. In other words, these two repeated statements hold everything together that we're reading in the middle and what is said throughout. So with that said, we conclude, can conclude that this psalm is in general a declaration by David of God's majestic name, which he says is known throughout all of the earth. In other words, there's no one like you, God, in all of creation. You alone possess power, glory, beauty, honor, wisdom, strength, care, everything that we need and everything your creation needs. You alone deserve the majesty and the praise. Of course, that's a grand statement. It's a wonderfully theological statement of who God is and what He deserves from us. However, though that is the foundation of the psalm, God's majestic name known throughout all the earth, the path that led David to make that claim begins not with the question, who is God, but began with the question, who am I? So let's look and see what answers David comes up with for that question he's asking or wondering of himself. We see there in verse 1, as I've already mentioned, a declaration of God's majestic name and glory. However, in verse 2, he takes what seems to be a surprising turn. He goes from thinking about God's eternal and awe-inspiring glory, which is on display throughout all the created order, to then thinking about the frailty and weakness of little children. And what he says is that through the mouths of children, babies, infants, that God has established strength. And it's a little bit confusing. What is David referring to here? And I think there's a few ways we can understand it. And I think first, in a general sense, David is shocked by the fact that human beings can tame the wild, can have dominion over God's creation to take nature and make culture out of it. And let me illustrate what I mean. I just went camping this last week which is why I'm a little tired. You know, you need a vacation from your vacation. Um, but I went to Lake Billy Chinook, as I did a few months ago, and so I won't use the same illustration that I used back then, though I must be honest, I knew I was going to preach Psalm 8 this week, and I thought, I'm going to go to Lake Billy Chinook. The skies are normally clear there, and I'm going to get some inspiration, hopefully, like David did over there in central Oregon. The only problem was I didn't see stars. I saw clouds every single day all day long. But all was not lost among the clouds. I was inspired nonetheless, but in a fascinating way. You see, we brought our dog with us. He is an amazing dog, as my neighbors know. Um, He is a lab pit mix. He's about 70 pounds. He is 10 years old. He looks like he's four, and he has so much energy. And he is, I mean, I think he's just the best dog Ever. And we don't normally bring our dog with us because, you know, dogs are a hassle to bring on camping trips. But my perspective was enlightened when we brought our dog because my kids, which are about this big, I was watching them and I'm always fascinated because they walk him on a leash and they're all like 50 pounds soaking wet. My dog, if he wanted to, could just take off and they're holding on to the leash, and they would not be able to control them. Or or if he wanted to, he could bite them. I mean, if he wanted to, he could devour them. I mean, he possesses that kind of strength and power, and yet when they tell him to sit, my little seven-year-old daughter, he sits down. 
When they tell him to walk, he walks. And I'm always amazed that this animal can be tamed even by these tiny little children. And I thought to myself, in the wisdom of God, even children have the ability to wield God's strength over his creation. And it made me think about this young David, that ruddy, red-headed boy who guarded the sheep at night. Certainly, that must have made David feel incredible as a young boy, to have such authority over these animals, to have care over these things, and, and to think, God, you put me in a position to oversee these animals, and without me there, certainly they would be in trouble. They would go astray. They would not know where to go. They would hurt themselves, and then they'd just be prey for all of these animals. He put me here to care for his creation. That's a, that's a general truth we can glean from this statement in verse 2, but a more specific truth would lead us I think to the way Jesus applied these words in Matthew 21, right after Jesus flips the tables over in the temple. Remember, he is furious because there are people in there who, money changers, who are taking advantage of the poor and selling things in God's house at a higher price. And he goes in there and he flips the tables over, and it says right after that in the next verse, this is in Matthew 21, that the little children were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And David, who wrote this psalm, and the religious elites that were beside them, we read in verse 16, though, this comment, and they said to him, that is, they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying, these children? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? That's what you'd call a Jesus juke, by the way. That's a joke. We'll get, you'll get it later. Um, you see, what Jesus implied with that quotation from Psalm 8 is that these children are doing what they were created to do, singing his praises. And in that moment, remember, we're talking about wisdom here. They were wiser. These little children were wiser than the religious elite the establishment of his day. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing, and this was a, a jab at them. He's saying they know the Scriptures more than you know the Scriptures because they're living out the Scriptures. Have you not read this before? It's like what Paul said in the opening chapter of his first letter to the church of Corinth, that God uses the foolish and the weak things of the world to confound the wise and bring down the strong. Wisdom does not come automatically through aging. I know some would like to believe that, but it doesn't. In Matthew 21, these children were wiser than their predecessors. Why? Because they recognized who it was that stood before them, and they responded accordingly. What did Jesus say? Unless you become like these, these little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot. It comes through weakness not through establishing my power. Wisdom is gained through a cor correct knowledge of God and self, as Calvin put it. And that is what David is rejoicing over in this psalm. But he elaborates further in verse 3 and 4. He oscillates in verses 1 and 2, thoughts about God to then thoughts of man. God is way up here and then yeah, look at how powerful these babies are. And in verses 3 and 4, he does it again by going back to God and then man again. In verses 3, he thinks about God the creator, the one who made everything and, and put it in its place and then holds it all together. The God who spoke, and there it was. And in a split second, David's thoughts move again from the heights and expanse of outer space 
to the smallness of human beings. Now understand, David isn't merely looking into the stars and coming to these conclusions. After all, the creation, or what is also referred to as general revelation, couldn't give David these kinds of answers. Yes, David is looking into the stars, but, but he's operating off of more information, right? The fact is, David was able to consider the stars and the handiwork of God because he also knew the Word of God. He knew the creation story all the way back because he had the writings of Moses, and, and he had the book of Genesis. And so he knew the story about how God created these things, and he's reflecting on it in real time. And what we see there in Genesis 1 and 2, you guys know it well, we see a poetry style of it here in verse 8. You see, in the beginning, in, in Genesis, it's not primarily a question about science. When we read Genesis 1 and 2, Moses is not trying to answer the question of evolution in those first chapters. He's answering the question, well, really, the existential questions. Who am I? Who are we? Why are we here? Is there meaning to my life? Is this life all there is, or is there life after this? Where did all of this come from, right? All those big existential questions are being asked and answered in the first two chapters or three chapters of Genesis. And in the early part of Genesis, we get the answer that God made all of this. That's where it all came from. And that before He made anything, there was nothing except Him. There was just Him. He independently made the world and everything in it the universe above and all that is in it, and the earth below and all that is on it. He made it, and he made it in six days. And oh, did I mention, because he mentioned, mankind was the crown jewel of all of his creation. He saved the best for last. This is what we're getting in the early part of Genesis. And he made mankind, he crowned them with dignity and honor by endowing them with his image and his likeness when he made mankind, distinguishing us from my dog, distinguishing us from the sheep that David watched over, distinguishing us from everything else in all his creation. And not only did he give us an image, but he gave us a job to do. He gave us, mankind, dominion over all the earth and all the creatures on it. And though we are told he made man from dust, not from gold, not from silver, not from these things, he made us from dust. And that exposes us to the reality of what we're truly made of, the stuff that we are, so that we don't get too fascinated with ourselves, right? Because at the end of the day, another psalmist says, you are just dust, right? We are also told, though, that even though we're dust, God made us in his image, therefore we have incredible dignity because of that image. And because of that, we can know God in a relational way. And it is in this sense that we are distinguished from everything else. So who am I and who are you and who are we? Well, for starters, we're just dust. We're a speck in this massive universe. And that's what David is feeling right here, right? Who am I? Who am I that you would think about me? I'm just a speck of dust in the midst of all of this. I am so unbelievably insignificant. Like another illustration, like grass, we are here for a minute and then we are gone the next. And yet David, even in reflecting on that, who am I that you would think about me? He's like, who am I though? I am valuable in the sight of God. 
because I bear his image and likeness. I possess his strength that he gave to me. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. He gave it to me by his grace. We've been entrusted to care for his creation through his power and through his resources. But notice that both in Genesis and here in Psalm 8, God, again, doesn't leave us to ourselves. He also cares for us, and he longs to know us as we ought to long to know him. Of course, there's something missing here in Psalm 8 that is present in the Genesis story, and it's undeniably clear in the Genesis story, which is the other existential question. Well, if God made me here and he gave me a purpose and I have all this dignity and, and he gave me this value and he gave me this great job to do, how come life sucks is the question. How come all this evil exists in the world? Where did all that come from and what can be done about that? That's a question we're not seeing here in Psalm 8, but we get it in Genesis. It's, it's almost in the background. It's almost the assumption of Psalm 8. In Genesis, we see, well, the reason why it all is messed up is because, well, mankind screwed it up there in the beginning. The role that we were given to care for creation, that was not done by Adam. He did not care for his wife. He did not care for himself. He did not have dominion over the animals as he let the serpent tell him what to do. And since we know that mankind screwed it all up, we know that the solution won't come merely from man alone. Instead, it must come from God, which he promises will happen in Genesis 3, 15, where he says that from the seed of the woman, the snake crusher will come and destroy the works of the evil one, which brings us to verses 5 and 6. You see, though David relished in the fact that though God made us from dust, and though our significance seems small in comparison to God and everything else he made in creation, he also recognized God gave us a divine dignity, and he crowns us with glory and honor, and, and he's set before a, right below the angels. We're just like right below them in, in regard to dignity and, and glory, but yet even more because the angels do not bear God's image like we do. And he gave us a divine task to care for all living creatures. This is what he's saying. And though mankind messed all that up when sin entered into the world, God's plan for humanity did not change. God's plan for us didn't change when we messed those things up, right? He doesn't move by those things. His will will be accomplished because there would come a day, a day when God would come as a man and do what the first man didn't do but should have done, and what we could never do on our own. You see, from Adam to David to Jesus, we see God had a plan with mankind. And as David reflected upon this truth that day, in his day, he must have marveled by the fact that God had called him to lead his people and care for them as a shepherd cares for his flock, yet he also knew very well he needed to be cared for, didn't he? He knew he needed a shepherd, which is why he writes what he writes in Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So even David, though he knew and cherished his high status as a human being endowed with honor and dignity, and also as the king of all of Israel, he loathed his fallen condition, and he longed for the day when a greater Adam, when a greater David would come and do what he could never do, 
what Adam failed to do in the garden, which was to bring all dominion under him. And, and that is exactly what Jesus did when he came to this earth, not in power, but as a newborn child, as a baby, out of the mouth of babies and infants, we read here in the psalm, God established strength upon the earth in the incarnation of Jesus. It's one of the great mysteries of the Christian gospel, God in the manger, God in the manger, but that's what he did. Born in poverty, born in weakness, God elevated him though eventually to the highest status in all of creation because he was made low. And through his atoning death, God made right what the first Adam and all of mankind ever since had gotten wrong. In fact, this is the meditation and conclusion of the author uh, to the Hebrews of this psalm. And he's talking about Jesus. This is, I think, in chapter 2 of Hebrews. He's writing about Jesus, and he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. The, the somewhere is Psalm 8, author to the Hebrews, in case you're wondering. Although they didn't have chapter breaks then. But he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. But he goes on. He has a comment. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, that is Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So in one sense, who is God? Well, God is maker, God is creator, God is glorious, God is majestic, but God is also Savior. God is Savior. One thing we know about Jesus' life and ministry is that he never was confused about the question, who am I? Never would Jesus have looked in the mirror and wondered, who am I? Jesus knew exactly who he was and what he was on earth to do. He knew that he was God. He knew that he came from God. And he also knew that as a human being, he possessed the image of God and that one day he was going to go back to God. But he also knew that he was sent here for a specific reason which was to bring all things into subjection to him. And he knew there was only one way that that was going to happen. And it was not through power, but through weakness. It wasn't through strength, but by being made low and through his suffering. And because he knew who he was, he willingly went to the cross on our behalf. And when he did he made still, as the psalmist says here, he made still the enemy and the avenger, and he silenced the foe. And as we close, we come back to that question we had at the beginning, who am I? And the answer is this, for those who come to see, as David saw, that their worth and their unworthiness are both sort of tied together in the fact that 
God made us from dust, and yet he made us in his image, and thus put their faith in Jesus Christ as the greater Adam and the greater David. What you are is you are a display of God's majestic power and care, both over you and over all of the earth. Again, not just in the way he cares for you as your maker and savior, but in the way he uses you to care for other people in the rest of his entire creation. You have value. Every human being has value because every human being is made in the image of God, and yet at the same time, man, we are so small. God doesn't have to use any of us. He said the rocks can cry out, right, if we don't speak. He does not need us. We are so needy of him, and yet at the same time, we have this high call. The secular scientists will tell you you are nothing but a glob of goo that evolved over time without any purpose and meaning. You're a cosmic accident is what you are. Is that what, is that good news? Is that true news? Not even close. Humanism will tell you you matter, but it can't tell you why because they've removed God from the equation. No, only God can take dust and make it something amazing. And only God can tell you you matter and give you a plan and purpose for your life. Only he can show his power through our weakness. It's truly amazing. That is who we are. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you and we are just amazed as David was by the way you work and your plan. And, and like David, when we consider you, who are we that you would even consider making us, saving us? I mean, after all the things that we have messed up in our own lives, why would you continue to strive with man? And yet you do because you care and you're there for us. And we give you so much thanks and praise for that fact and that reality. And, and we also recognize that you've given us a, a role and a task to play in this world. And, and as we do that, not only in just the way we lives our li live our lives, but also in our witness for you as we tell others about this great God and this great Savior who defines who we are and gives us purpose and meaning to our lives. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit, and we thank you for your people that lead us into truth, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.